Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, LendingLies.com, and The Garfield Firm. Servicing all 50 states and 24 countries with news and analysis about the largest economic crime in human history. This program is for general information only and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice or consultation with a licensed professional. This show is not intended as a solicitation for the engagement of any services. And now, presenting world-renowned author, trial lawyer, CLE lecturer, and court-approved expert witness on securitization of debt, Neil Garfield. The name game, how Wall Street lies to the courts and everyone else. What's in the name? Wall Street brokers are hoping you and your lawyer will believe anything they say just by naming it. The problem is most people do believe it. Hi, this is Neil Garfield, and this is Thursday, February 4th, 2021. I'm broadcasting live from Duval County, Florida. Tonight, I want to take a chunk out of the bank's disinformation and fake news. There is a difference between a statement and a piece of information. I can say there is no cliff. That is a statement. And unfortunately today, many people take statements as information. So if there is a cliff, even though my statement said there isn't a cliff, you proceed at your own very grave peril, which is you fall off the cliff. But if, in fact, there was no cliff, then my statement that there is no cliff would also be information. And that is because both the statement and the facts all match up. That's why it's called a statement of fact. And that is the issue in every court case. So here's another one. If I said the sky is black, that might be true on a cloudy night away from light pollution. So in that case, it would be a statement and it would be information. We refer to that as a statement of fact. But if I said that on a bright sunny day, it would be a statement, but not information and therefore not a statement of fact. Some of you may realize where I'm heading with this. Finally, although I could go on with this forever, if I said this is a loan and now it is yours, that is a statement. It might be information and therefore a statement of fact if, in fact, I was talking about a transaction in which someone received money from a lender and now I owned that transaction. That would be two statements and two possible pieces of information. One, that the loan exists, there is a loan, and the other, that I own it, and therefore I could give it to you. But if there is no such loan, or there is no transaction that was a loan, or if I didn't own the transaction, then those statements would not be information. So you could talk about my statements And that would be a true statement. I made the statements. But that still would not make my statements true. 
what Wall Street does, it makes statements about statements, uh, about statements, about statements, to the point where there's so many statements that most people, including the judge and lawyers for both sides, assume that those statements are true, when none of them are. There is a difference between a statement and information. There is also a difference between information and evidence. Evidence, as I pointed out before, is something that the judge agrees to accept as uh, proving a particular fact that is material to the case. Sorry to get technical, but this is a lesson that needs to be learned if you want to succeed in advancing a foreclosure defense narrative. A document containing any writing is a statement. It could be fictional, could be a short story, or it could be factual, or even a combination of both, like those historical novels, etc. The term facially valid is confusing to a lot, a lot of people. Facially valid is a shorthand reference to a judicial doctrine. That's not something that the average layperson understands. If the document contains all the things that other similar docu documents are expected or required to have in them, then the judicial doctrine comes into play and it is legally presumed that it is what it says it is. And it becomes a fact for the case that if something says it's an assignment of mortgage, then it is assigned an assignment of mortgage. That's how the system works. That's not bias. It's the way it was set. It's the way the system was set up. And you could argue philosophically about the system, but that is the system. And so, it legally becomes a statement of fact without any reference to whether it is a sunny day or a cloudy nighttime sky. So. This grew out of a simple imperative towards judicial economy. Why require proof of something that everybody already knows is true? In court, such legal presumptions can be rebutted by either facts or negative inferences. Rebuttal takes two forms. One is the production of contrary evidence. The same person deeded the same property to someone else before the deed that's involved in this case. All right, that would be contrary to the effectiveness and validity of this deed. Or it can be in the form of a negative inference, and this is the thing that most homeowners know nothing about, and many lawyers miss the nuances on this. The negative inference arising out of the unwillingness of the opposing party to give evidence in place of the presumption. Remember, the presumption is not actually a fact. It's a presumption of fact. It's an assumption. It's a legal assumption, which makes it a presumption. They must give evidence in place of the presumption if you ask for it, if discovery is timely and proper. Once the negative inference is raised, two things happen. The opposing party can be sanctioned, and the court can enter uh, judgment against the opposing party for failure to give any evidence that supports the presumption that they wanted applied. So
So the statement and the document that this is an assignment is now rebutted and the reverse is assumed to be true, that it wasn't an assignment. And by that is meant that the assignment was executed without there having ever been a transaction in which a sale of a, an alleged debt or note or mortgage took place. In other words, nobody paid for it. And that is exactly what has happened in thousands of cases where I was either lead counsel or a consulting counsel. Bill Padillo is not a lawyer, is not a lawyer, but he is nonetheless very conversant with certain Latin named legal principles, one of which I particularly like. He likes to point out uh, one that is very often repeated in thousands and thousands of court decisions throughout the United States and the world. It's a basic principle of property law that's encapsulated in a Latin phrase, nemo da quod non habit. One cannot give what one does not have. That principle is as old as mankind. So the translation of that is really this. If you don't own something, you can't give it to anyone, even if it is in writing. But that writing can cause problems. So if I say to somebody, I'm giving your car to my cousin, and I do that in writing, well, my cousin may think he's receiving ownership of your car, but he's not. Why? Because I don't own your car. But if I put it in the form that's acceptable to the court, it will be assumed that my document is true. And then if you ask me, well, do you own the, did, did you own that car? And I refuse to answer. Well, then the document is rebutted because I've refused to give the evidence that would support that presumption. So the translation uh, is, is if you don't own something, you can't give it to anyone else, even if it is in writing. But if it is in writing, you may need to rebut the legal presumption that gets applied because it establishes a fact for the case, even though that fact is untrue. So the problem starts at the beginning. You are only given a handful of information and your brain has an unfortunate tendency to fill in the rest with the imagination of the missing information. This is how people jump to conclusions and arrive in the wrong place at the wrong time. So you and trial judges and lawyers who might represent you get stuck running down a rabbit hole designed specially for you by Wall Street. I've won thousands of cases for homeowners, and in some cases where I was lead trial counsel, the judge issued explicit findings of fact detailing how the remic trust named in the complaint failed to present itself in court with any credible evidence that it owned anything, much less the loan in the so-called loan in question. All the cases where the 
foreclosure mill lost were based upon the absence of any admissible evidence that would show that the foreclosure mill lawyers were representing a party who owned an unpaid debt owed to that party. So if, if it's a judicial state, that would be the plaintiff. If it's a non-judicial state, that would be the named beneficiary. They could show in all cases, and they do show, that a note was executed and a mortgage or deed of uh, trust along with it. They could show that the homeowner started to make scheduled payments and stopped. But they cannot show, and they never will be able to show, that their alleged client owned the debt. That was always left to human imagination. In a court of law, that imagination is called the legal presumption. It's imaginary. And unless you successfully challenge that presumption, the homeowner will almost always lose their home because the imaginary becomes real for purposes of the case. If the alleged client of the foreclosure mill doesn't own the debt, they can't reduce the debt upon receipt of any payment. And since they never receive payments, I'm talking about remit trusts, they have no account to reduce. The reduction of the payment of the debt for payments is literally impossible, legally and practically. The way homeowners lose in court is by their narrative that says there is no debt or there is no ownership, and then when they're asked for any evidence supporting that narrative, they don't have it. Case dismissed, summary judgment entered, they lose their home, and then they argue that homeowners can't win. They're wrong. In all of my recent talks and writing, I've been, I have advanced a narrative in which the loan does not exist. The no-debt narrative is not an argument to be presented in court by homeowners or by lawyers. It might be something investors could bring up, but that's not the subject of tonight's show. No, the no-debt narrative is merely an explanation to homeowners and their lawyers of why the challenge to the existence, ownership, and authority over the debt almost always works. But don't overstep yourself. Your job is simple. Homeowners win cases because the court finds insufficient evidence of the debt or ownership of it. They don't. Homeowners don't win because courts find that a nefarious plot is afoot. Although you may find, like in some of my cases, references to shady dealing. Many people come to me and other lawyers after the alleged foreclosure sale has occurred. At first, my reaction was the same as many other lawyers. It's too late, the sale has already occurred. But then the decision started coming out of the courts saying they didn't want to interrupt foreclosures, but wrongful foreclosures were appropriate causes of action if the assignments were void and the foreclosure was complete. I don't agree that's a proper way of looking at it, but that's the state of the law now, so we have to work with that. Allegations of wrongful foreclosure can only be brought after the foreclosure sale is complete. 
Then lawyers and forensic analysts and homeowners started sending me post-sale documents they had discovered. And it became apparent to me that the foreclosure mills, taking their instruction from Wall Street brokers, used that period of time when nobody's looking to tie up the loose ends and make it appear that everything that happened before the sale was valid. But in doing that, they often may be admitting the opposite for the first time and in writing. It's just that nobody's noticing that everything they did, starting with the initial correspondence with the homeowner, was a farce designed to deceive homeowners and the courts for the sole purpose of getting money that would be used for fees, bonuses, commissions, and profits, rather than to pay down any debt owed by anyone. It is often true that the best challenge after a is after a foreclosure is complete because of that fact. They have, after the foreclosure sale, you will see documents that are filed of record and otherwise available that contradict the position they took prior to the foreclosure judgment or the foreclosure sale. I know it sounds crazy to say that the best challenge may be after foreclosure, but I'm rapidly coming to the conclusion that that might indeed be the case. Tonight we'll discuss tactics and strategies in foreclosure defense in which we can hang the evildoers by their own paperwork. It's true that eventually the truth comes out, or at least part of it. When the credit bid is moved around, as I have seen in recent cases, from one party to another, or they slip in new names into the party supposedly who was granted judgment, and submitted the credit bid, and they have an assignment to bid without any consideration. It's the same thing as assignment of mortgage. There has to be consideration. So party involved is often not the party who sued in a judicial action or on whose behalf notices were sent to the homeowner. So tonight we're going to look at one such deed, and I'm going to tell you some things about how to analyze it. This is not a complete uh, lesson in analyzing documents, but it will give you some ballpark ways, uh, some people call it heuristic, in which to look at a document. So I gave, I, I lifted from a client or a prospective client, I don't remember, uh, some language that appears in the deed that was issued as a result of the so-called foreclosure sale. So this says the deed is made by this guy Halliday as successor trustee and a member of the Utah State Bar. Okay, so I do have problems with the trustee being a member of the bar unless they had zero business dealings with any of the other parties that were pursuing foreclosure. 
but that's not the point. As successor trustee is the point. The only way he could become a successor trustee is if the party named as beneficiary and authorizing the succession of trustees, if that party qualified as a legal beneficiary under the deed of trust. So what does that mean? Well, here's what it means. They're saying U.S. Bank National Association as trustee of the LXS 2007-8H asset-backed note series 2007-SH. Okay. So the question is, can the presumption of fact arising from this deed that U.S. Bank is the trustee of a trust which is not named but it's implied, notice there's no language in there that says this is a trust. U.S. Bank is, in fact, the trustee of a trust that owns the debt, note, and mortgage, all three, not one, then the statement that this deed is executed and that, that Halliday is a successor trustee is true. And it's going to be presumed to be true unless you say, wait a minute, I want to see proof. That's what we call the discovery process. And you simply ask a question to the attorneys who represent, who say they represent U.S. Bank, even though they've never had a single word with them. And you say, show me where U.S. Bank paid for the debt or... Show me where a trustor or settlor who paid for the debt gave the debt note and mortgage to U.S. Bank to hold in trust for beneficiaries. They can't do that because no such thing ever occurred. But by naming it successor trustee, it becomes a presumption that he is a, he is a trustee. But he's not if U.S. Bank doesn't own the debt, note, and mortgage by reason of payment or because someone who made the payment entrusted this transaction to U.S. Bank. So they're saying it's, it's dark outside, and maybe it is and maybe it isn't. But you've got to ask questions and seek evidence to determine whether or not what they're saying here is true. So let's go a little further. And it says U.S. Bank is a successor in interest to Bank of America. No, it isn't. A successor in interest occurs through merger or acquisition. 
neither Bank, Bank of America didn't acquire U.S. Bank, and U.S. Bank didn't acquire Bank of America. What they're trying to say is that there was a transaction in which U.S. Bank bought the position of trustee from Bank of America, who acquired it as, since they were, in fact, a successor by merger to LaSalle Bank, which was the original trustee. The question there is, can the position of trustee be bought and sold like a commodity? Well, if you look at any family trust, I would think that everybody would be up in arms if Uncle Joe was named a trustee and he sold it to Aunt Sally, who hates everybody. I don't think that that position can be sold. I don't think it's saleable. I think any reference to the sale is void, not voidable. So going down the document, you'll see that there's a reference to trustors. Well, in a deed of trust, the trustors are the owners of the property. Okay, good. Let me just remind you that if you look at a pooling and servicing agreement, you will not see the term trustor or settlor, which are basically the same term. There is no trustor. There is no settlor because there is no trust. You also will not see in a pooling and servicing agreement any identification or ways to identify the beneficiaries of the trust. And in every case with a remix trust, the beneficiary is the, it could be more than one, it is the book runner, manager, investment bank for the offering of um, unsecured certificates to investors. So, you see that by naming somebody as having a particular position of trustee, there's a presumption that they are a trustee, which in turn is a presumption that there is a trust, which in turn is a presumption that there is something entrusted to the trust, none of which is true. These trusts are empty. Inside conversations, I can assure you that opposing counsel has confirmed that with me. Now, there was also the involvement of mortgage electronic registration systems as a nominee of Varent Inc., a Utah corporation. Well, MERS, we all know, disclaims any ownership of any debt, note, or mortgage. It receives no money, it processes no money, and it is an agent only for the party named as lender on the deed of trust. But the party named as lender, named as lender, is presumed to be a lender, but they're not in many cases or they would be unable to respond to discovery showing that they were, because most of these lenders have gone out of business. 
by showing that they are unable to come up with actual facts to support the legal presumption, you can undercut their ability to proceed with the case in foreclosure. And that's exactly what I've done. And it's it's what many other people uh, have done successfully in court. So be careful, not only with what you admit in the litigation phase, but also take special care to analyze what happened at or around the time that a supposed foreclosure sale occurred. And keep in mind that the foreclosure sale that that supposedly occurred in which a deed was issued to a party who made a credit bid, not someone who paid cash, that's probably void if U.S. Bank or some remit trust is involved. That's it for tonight. Thanks for listening. See you next week. The opinions expressed on The Neil Garfield Show are those of its hosts and should not be ascribed to any other persons or entities. For more information about Neil, the blog, or upcoming seminars, please visit livinglies.me. Give us a call at 954-451-1230 or send an email to n-e-i-l-f-g-a-r-f-i-e-l-d at hotmail.com. Thank you for listening to The Neil Garfield Show. If the information has helped you, consider making a donation by visiting livinglies.me.